This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. This is a closer look at Tom Dittmer. He was a farm boy from a small town in Iowa who went on to serve in the U.S. Army's prestigious 3rd Infantry Old Guard and as a White House aide member under Lyndon Johnson. In 1969, he co-founded what was to become one of the largest commodities trading firms in the world, Revco with his father, Ray Friedman. In 2006, he was inducted into the Futures Industry Association Futures Hall of Fame. He's written a rollicking personal memoir of his remarkable life called Talkin' Big. He joins me now for a closer look. Tom, you write in the acknowledgement of your new book that your current wife, Frances, and others pretty much forced you to write it, and it was going to be just a family project at first. What did you want to accomplish, and are you pleased that you did it? It started exactly like you described it. We're going to make six or seven copies for the, the kids and the grandkids and uh, print it ourselves on Amazon, and that would be it. And, um, well, then since my wife is a author, has written several books. She said, well, maybe we should get a publisher. And then maybe we should get a publicist. And then maybe we should go on a book tour. And that's why we're talking today. And, yes, she has drugged me fighting and screaming all the way. This isn't the usual business book of deals and challenges. At least half the book is very personal stories of your family and marriages and kids. So let's start with the key people in your early life. First, your mother, Evelyn. Your biological father was not part of your life, so tell us about your mother and life with the extended family on the farm. Well, that was, you know, that was one of the great blessings in life, except for the, you'd be <clears throat> running around playing with your cousins, and every time you go by somebody's house, it was a relative, and they'd feed you, but then they always wanted to give you a bath, too, so you ran like crazy. And um, and so it was a very easy, wonderful life to grow up in, you know, in a small town and on the farm uh, with, all, with all the family and cousins. Your mother remarried Ray Friedman, whom you call Pop. Yes. A new step-parent is a wild card for any child, but Pop was a good addition to the family and key to your future. Yes. Tell us about him. He was, well, he was exactly that. Um, he gave me all the opportunity, and we started the company in 69. But probably one of the best stories is that when I first meet him, we're in the car driving to Omaha or something, and it's a 52 Pontiac, and you recall how the seats used to break in the old days, and You'd, your head would be peering over the window, and I was a pretty good-sized guy, and he was six foot two, and and we could barely see out of the car. And I'd say, Pop, you know, you've had some pretty, you know, tough things going in your life. I says, why, why are you so happy? He says, well, you got to pick happy or sad. Pick happy. 
<laughs> you had challenges growing up. Uh, you had a severe learning disability and you stuttered, so you had trouble in school. But suddenly you got much better grades when you were promised a car. Is that a clue to the tenacity we see in your future? Oh, the car was the only time that I did not get all D's. <laughs> the only time, and my mother almost killed me for that because she said, you've been getting D's your entire life. Now all of a sudden for a car, you can get B's. You know, and so she was very um, upset with that, but I didn't disappoint her. I went back to D's again. So you graduated at the bottom of your high school class. Not quite. <laughs> Second from the bottom. Second from last. You failed out of summer school, but you were determined to go to college, and you did. Tell this story because it says a lot about you as a young man. That was probably the low point. I just got in a car accident and and uh, ruined my car, but no one was hurt, and so that was all good. I flunked out of summer school, and so was the Army, get a job or find a school that would take me. And I went to the University of South Dakota, and Mr. Frankenthaler was the dean of admissions, and he must have been 80 years old then, and he said I couldn't possibly go there. And I said, Dr. Frankenthaler, I have to go here. And he said, no. But I waited outside his office for three days, and the third day, he weakened, and he says, okay, I'm going to give you the test that we give the, the, uh, uh, the folks on the Indian reservation. And he, and he says, I'm going to help you out. When it says you want to be a plumber or a fireman, pick fireman. <laughs> That's great. Well, you wanted to work at IBM, but you were rejected. Yes. And you ended up in the Army, and you write that the U.S. Army was absolutely the best thing that ever happened to me. Many people say that, but what are your reasons? Oh, I, I thought the Army was, was, um, was one of the great experiences in my life, actually. And, um, uh, and being a second lieutenant is, um, is, is a wonderful position. You get to have, be, a, be a platoon leader, and, uh, and I thought it was you know, one of the better things I've, I got to do in my life. It was a wonderful experience. Tom, you write that back in the 60s, when you started out, commodities exchanges were segregated, Jews from the Irish. Tell us about that, and when did it change? Well, the mercantile exchange where I got my job in 1966 was the Jewish exchange. It came from the old butter and egg board, and that was primarily where the Jews were. And the, and the Irish were at the Chicago Board of Trade. That, I think, changed forever when the Chicago Mercantile Exchange bought the Board of Trade. Right. And in 1969, you formed a partnership with your stepfather, Ray Friedman and Company, or Revco. What was Revco doing at that point? He was in Sioux City, Iowa, and I was in Chicago. He had a, a good-sized business in the Sioux City stockyards, and I had a smaller business in, in Chicago. And in 69, he owned 75%, and I owned 25%. And we went in partners together. And from day one, we were profitable because we each already had a business. And we were paying out part of our commission to another fellow. And uh, so from, from day one, we were, we were profitable. And I think above and beyond that, the fact that you had a harmonious relationship with him was a tribute to both of you understanding 
personalities and how they interface. Yes, blessed. The new Merck Exchange started to sell futures on live cattle. How did this go for you? Oh, this, well, that's actually what, what uh, put us on the map. Um, that's why uh, Pop went down to the Sioux City Stockyards, which at the time was a, was a large stockyards, and, um, and, and the people in the cattle business were all there. And in in '75, uh, I got in the feedlot business and um, in the Panhandle of Texas, and we fed a million cattle a year, and they're still in business today, feeding a million cattle a year. And so that really kind of helped put us on the map when they, when they started trading cattle. Around that period of time, I personally was in the cattle business. I was in business with a guy named Larry Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. of Kansas City. I wonder if you knew him. The name sounds very familiar, uh, but, but I can't place it specifically. He ran herds of cattle for absentee owners. And in terms of uh, what he did, they converted uh, ordinary income into capital gain by feeding cattle that were then sold at capital gains rates. Now. You write that in 1971, Nixon closed the gold window, and you say that this was the beginning of what got you into the mess and the debt we're in today. Would you explain this? When they closed the gold window, um, Germany or whoever the the country was could not be paid back in gold like they could before that, and now they had to keep the dollars. And... And that, I think, is what gave us, we could export our inflation, and, um, and it gave rise to the housing markets, commodity prices, and um, it actually made the commodity business what it was. In 1974, you bought out Pop, your partner, and stepfather, Ray Friedman. Why was that? Because it, it was just a natural thing, actually, because I was young, probably 30 years old, and uh, he was 55, 60, and he wanted to take the money out and spend it, and I wanted to, you know, expand the business and, and grow it, and he wanted to spend, and so I gave him a buy-sell that I'll buy or sell at, and, and he decided to sell. Hmm. Your first move on your own was to buy feedlots. Yes. What happened after that, and what was your motivation? Well, that that happened because, I mean, the uh, cattle business, we were the biggest futures cattle brokers. And then with the, with, with the cash cattle business, uh, eight feed yards, feeding 450,000 cattle at a time, you, you had pretty good ideas about what feeder cattle cost, fat cattle cost, grain cost, and... Uh, and and what the packers were doing and so it it really helped out us from an information point of view uh your trading and your hedging now you created revco capital to finance your own cattle yes were you unstoppable at this point <laughs> in in my mind or reality <laughs> uh, in reality uh, well, of course, everyone's stoppable, but I, I thought, because at, at, at that moment in time, the banker was making more money, um, loaning us money than we were making feeding the cattle, 
because it, it was pretty skinny margin, as you recall in those days. Yep. And uh, and the banker was making easily three to four times what we were making, so that's why we got in the finance business, and uh, and it worked out wonderful. Did you ever expect to corner the market on on cattle? <laughs> you know what? You must be talking to my wife because on our second date, she said, "Did you try and corner the cattle market? Is that a true story?" <laughs> and so, you know, I probably tried. Do you believe markets can be cornered? I tell you what, I've been doing this fifty, sixty years. You got to be very lucky in the in the commodity markets. Because there's always somebody with a bigger paddle out there. At its height, how big was Revco? Well, you know, we really have to put this in in perspective. Um, Revco was a large commodity futures broker, but in the scope of Wall Street, it's not a big deal compared to the size of of, of Wall Street. We had a little niche uh, for a while. And um, and it was a nice niche, but in the scheme of things, it's, it was a pretty small deal. Niches are often very significant factors, and evidently you use this to good advantage and develop an outstanding business. How'd you get into the hedge fund business in 1995? That was other people were, were running the company, and and um, and I thought that would be would be fun, and uh, and uh, me and a, a friend of mine started a little company and were successful for for quite a few years, and um, and then and then we quit. I was getting divorced, and and I moved to California, and he went back to uh, Texas. You write that with commodity trading, there's always a loser. Uh, not so with stocks. Is that how you could take such big risks, knowing that losing sometimes is just part of the business? That there is, you know, stocks and commodities are are not the same, and and uh, there's a deadline on on uh, on commodities, and stocks pay dividends, and usually if you store a commodity, you're paying interest and storage, and so it's uh, two different complete. Entities, and and the difference is is that at that moment in time, we had we had 33 PhDs in in uh, in 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 ag econ, and we had the biggest cattle operation, and 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 because of that, we were you know trading 35 million bushels of corn a year, and and so the information flow. And the information from the PhDs and the clients that we had, uh, we had a we had a good edge, which is now obviously with with the computers gone. Now the IRS and the CFTC were always investigating both you and Revco. Yes, what, what you describe is government overreach so onerous that settling is the only cost-effective option. Do you know of any, or would you favor any fundamental change to keep our markets transparent and fair for investors without killing companies through legal fees and other expenses? What has happened is that, you know, the advent of the computer has has changed a lot of that. The 
the position limits that that we had in in you know historically was 150 cattle, and then it went up to, I think to 450. Well, today you can have 17,000 cattle, and so the position limits have have changed dramatically. But I think there is one thing that 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 is, and I think maybe you have a better feel than I do of this, is that exchanges used to be country clubs, and then they went public. Now, as an exchange at the country club, whether it's the New York Stock Exchange or the, or the, or the Board of Trade, was, was to look out after the customers and the customers' money. Now, they have a dual purpose. They've got to look out for the shareholders' money. And so I think there's kind of a... a um, a tough trade there for them because they have to look out for the shareholders and they're also supposed to be looking out for the customers. And I think maybe those at times can't come in conflict like they did with um, with uh, EDNF Man. In the chapter, The End of an Era, you write about partnership issues that ended with you selling the company. What made you decide to sell and what ultimately happened to Revco? We had been with customer seg funds, I think the straw that broke the camel's back was we had seg funds, and for 30 years that we've been doing it, we've been buying three-year paper or, or two-year paper and rolling them over every month. Every month, some would roll off and would roll back into the same exact thing. I mean, we'd go back in the three-year and, and just keep doing that. And... Um, and then one day I went up to, to, to see the CFO, and I said, you know, I don't know why, but, but, but the, you know, three years on fire. And I said, you know, that, that should really help the month. He says, no, he says, I didn't do that last month. Uh, we didn't roll it. And we sold all, all the SEG fund money, sold the uh, uh, stuff that we had, the twos and threes. And I said, what? And, and just on your own? And from that moment on, it was another 30 days, and I sold the company. Tom, you wrote that meeting Jerry Gould, a professor from the University of Chicago, changed your life for the better. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this. Well, Jerry was was a real um, character to, to begin with. And, um, and, and what he did is he introduced me to a lot of the professors out at the um, – whether it was Arthur Laffer, whether Mert Miller, introduced me to all the professors out there, Gary Becker, and uh, and we became friends over the years and uh, went to Davos together and and uh, had a it it really improved. You know, I said, you know, what am I supposed to read? He says, you know, have have you read the Tocqueville? I says, no. He said, you need to read it, and. Um, and, and and Hayeki and 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 all the stuff that 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 I should have read I didn't and and he got me a, a reading list and um, and and we had a lot of good times together. It sounds like you really benefited from that relationship, but you also had a relationship with Arthur Laffer and Milton Friedman and some other Nobel winners. If you were having dinner with those men today, what do you think you'd be talking about besides Donald <laughs> Trump? Well, we'd we'd, we'd probably be uh, talking about the, the uh, markets now and um, and what they're going to do and 
and uh, I'd, I would be quiet and let them talk because I don't have any idea. I'm not sure they do either, but nevertheless, your wife said that with commodities you weren't selling a car or a widget, you were selling an idea, and ideas change. Therefore, you always have something new to sell. Exactly. Is that why you found it so much fun, as you've said so many times? The uh, futures business, if you're right, they don't ask your pedigree, your family, your upbringing, your religion. If you're right, the market, they pay you. And if you're wrong, you pay them. And in that way, it's a very um, uh, free democratic experience. You traded for Cuba. Yes. And you spent time with Castro. What was your impression of him? And do you feel the embargo against Cuba should have been lifted? First of all, it, it's illegal for for for, um, to, for Americans to trade with Cuba, so your London office or your Paris office would have to do that. Two would be, I don't think it should be lifted. That is just my own personal opinion. But meeting with him and having dinner, you know, with four to six people in the room is this kind of a monologue, is that you ask a question, he answers the question, and this goes on for a couple hours, and then you go home. And uh, it's uh, not that exciting as what you think it would be. Wherever you've been, you founded... You found a school to help. When you lived in St. John, you helped the Gift Hill School. But tell me about the school you found in Chicago, Providence St. Mel. Oh, that was one of my um, more fun things in life. Uh, my mother passed away in 1987, and those are big moments in your life, and you think, you know, I need to pay attention a little more, and I thought inner city education was the was a place that I should look, and I found Paul Adams at Providence St. Mel, and he was he was eating his own cooking. He lived in the in the uh, attic of the school, and whatever money was left over, whether it was nine hundred bucks a year or two thousand bucks a year, that was what he made. And um, he and I became friends over the years, and we've helped the school together. I've just bought him time. Uh, when you give them some money, you, you're buying time for them to, to get things right, and, he, and they've done a, a wonderful job, and, and, and they are fabulous people. You also talk about meeting Chicago legend Studs Terkel in the 80s, and you told him you didn't think the commodities business had a future because you always thought of it as a hot dog stand. Mm -hmm. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, if, if you put on too much pickle relish and too many onions and too much mustard, you're not going to make a profit. And two, as you said, it isn't the securities business. And it was, um, it has now gone to where it's electronic trading, and the commission business doesn't really support much of anything anymore. And... Uh, and the way that, that, that we were in business doesn't really exist anymore. And, um, and I didn't think it was a good long-run place for my children to be. Now, you write that one of the reasons the commodities markets don't work like they used to is because there's no convergence 
between the futures price and the cash price. Could you explain what changed that and when it took place? I'm not sure what what changed that. Um, I know that the people that used to trade like me, almost everyone's quit. I'm not sure that the the, uh, artificial intelligence cares what the convergence is. Uh, you see it all the time in meats and grains, and um, and everyone is kind of aggravated about it, but I don't know uh, if that's ever going to change. Well, I think our markets throughout America, throughout the world, changed dramatically oh. as a function of lots of things that you and I both know about. That is correct. He is an Iowa farm boy who graduated second to last in his high school class, but became a member of the Army's prestigious Old Guard, a White House social aide, and the co-founder of Revco, which was once the largest brokerage on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. He's written a memoir, Talking Big, How an Iowa Farm Boy Beat the Odds to Found and Lead One of the World's Largest Brokerage Firms. Tom Detmer, Thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, you can email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt.